listening to That'll Preach. Now, this is another interview that we're doing, and uh, I'm not here with Paul, my normal co-host, um, because we're afraid of what Paul might say if he's interviewing someone. So it's just me, Brian, here, but I have a special guest. Uh, I have Dr. Greg Lanier. He's Associate Professor of New Testament at Reform Theological Seminary and Associate Pastor at River Oaks Church. And I took a bunch of classes with him, and they were very helpful classes and uh, with very helpful charts. And uh, so I really appreciate uh, Dr. Lanier, and uh, thank you for being on the podcast with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm trying to lead the reform resurgence in chart making. I'm telling you. From other, other, other uh, branches of Christianity. So that's pretty much all I do. I still, I still use those charts. Like your Idra, the uh, in, incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, your little chart, your day of the Lord charts. You have a chart for really everything. And it's a uh, thing. Yeah. Well, what, I mean, what do you, why, why not? You know? I'm, 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 I am curious. What do you use to make those charts? I mean, this is important information we have to get background wise because they're pretty intricate. <laughs> uh, honestly, I use PowerPoint. Um, in my prior life, when I was a management consultant, that's what we did for everything. And so I just became, uh, you can actually do a lot with PowerPoint. So, and I wanted it to be something that was easy to edit and, and didn't require some you know crazy expensive software package and uh, whatnot. So yeah, that's what I do. So I remember- Little it's, known fact, I had to give away my, my secrets. There you go. It is funny. I, th- I remember like some of my friends when we would like listen to your lectures or like, we'd be like, you'd introduce a topic and we would joke like, Oh, I bet he has a chart for this. And we'd flip the page and it's like, oh, he has a chart for this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a very good chart. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's been a very helpful tool for me. And I hope your chart ministry continues to, <laughs> thank to you, flourish. Thank but uh, one of the things I want to talk about is you recently wrote a book on understanding uh, the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, uh, Old Made New. And I think that's a really great title. And uh, when I was reading through it, I'm like, man, this is a really great kind of distilled, accessible book of a lot of things that you taught us in seminary. And uh, in your opening, you know, kind of introduction, you talk about writing a book for lay people to understand how the New Testament interacts with the Old Testament. And I'm just curious, like what the background is for that, either as a pastor, as a professor, what kind of inspired you to tackle that particular subject yeah i think i said i hope my mom reads it and she's she's told me she finally has her copy and she's she has started reading it so i've at least succeeded in that objective Uh, whether she finishes or not i suppose remains to be seen um yeah and so the book is i want to make sure it's it's um it's not a it's not strictly a book about like how to understand the old testament it's not a book about finding jesus in the old testament there's plenty of books on that uh, it's more narrowly focused on what do I do when I bump into a quotation or allusion or what have you of the Old Testament in Matthew or Romans or Acts or what have you. So it's mainly focused more narrowly on that. Now, I do draw some broader implications. Okay, what does this mean about our overall? Like, how do I read the Bible in general? Uh, but that was my focus. And as you know, that's a whole field uh, in itself that I find particularly interesting and do a lot of uh, research in specifically the use of the old Testament and the new problem, uh, at least as I was pitching this to Crossway, the publisher and, and thinking about potentially doing this project is that there's a ton of good research that has been done. 
And there was sort of a rebirth of all this in the 60s, although, you know, Christians have been doing this for a long time, um, as early as, you know, Justin and Martyr and, and those kinds of folks. But uh, there's been a ton of stuff done on it, but the vast, vast, vast majority of the scholarship on looking at, you know, how does Hebrews particularly make use of Psalm 40 or Jeremiah 31 or what have you, all of, almost all of that, if not really, essentially all of it was at a very technical scholarly level. And it gets, it gets buried in PhD dissertations. Like my my own, my own was actually in this vein uh, or journal articles that only specialists read. And uh, even the most accessible guide, which is by a colleague of mine named uh, Greg Beal. Many people probably know that name. Uh, even that book, which is trying to be more accessible, I found this is no knock on, on Beale's book. I actually find it very valuable and use it a lot, but it, it, it was still even hard for seminary students. That's what I was always finding. Uh, it gets technical really fast. You know, there's 12 steps of this and 20 possibilities for this and go look up stuff in intertestamental literature, whatever that is. Um, and I was like, you know, my, if my students are struggling with this, I know my church members are going to struggle with this book, uh, and let alone my mom. Right. And so, uh, although she's a very bright lady, if she's listening at home, um, and she wrote so an like, endorsement you know, on the back of the book. I saw that, right. Who did your mom wrote an endorsement on the back of the book. Yeah. It was just yeah. endorsed by my, my dad, my mom, and yeah. <laughs> um, who also has read it. Uh, and so I was like, you know, someone really needs to try. And I was like, maybe it's just too hard to do. I don't know. But someone really needs to try to to write a, a tool, a, a short book that a Bible study leader, your average interested layperson who just wants to be more equipped to read their Bibles uh, and even pastors and seminary students kind of as a refresher. Someone needs to write that book and to keep it as simple, but still but still accurate, still thorough, still rigorous, but something that people can read and like, okay, I get it. I know what I can do because the reality is, and I mentioned this in the book, you know, the new Testament engages um, explicitly, like when it it tells you as it is written something like 240 ish times kind of depends on how you want to count it. But then there's dozens and dozens and dozens of more vague allusions or just mention Abraham, but not a specific passage or whatever or Hagar and Sarah, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so it, you, you really can't go very far in the New Testament before you bump into those kinds of things. I mean, you, you actually hit it in the very first verse of Matthew 1. And so you're really impoverished as a Bible reader if you don't know what to do with it, if you just sort of skip over it or whatever. And so my hope was that this book would be a gateway for people to uh, who might be less familiar with this whole game, uh, who don't have the patience to wade through extraordinarily long and expensive monographs on Paul's prosopological use of three Psalms in Galatians or whatever, because uh, they're all so narrow. And so that that's the genesis of the idea was to uh, help people have some basic principles that they can use really anytime they're using the Bible. And, and as a side note, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you, but uh, we, I did just come out with a study guide as well. That's free. It's a PDF. There's also a, a print on demand version that would, the goal is that you could use something like that in a, in a you know, 10 week Bible study or something, a small group. So that's out there as well on the Crossway website. 
That's great. I can I can link that in the show notes too. That would be a really helpful resource. You have a great line in your book where you talk about how the step from knowing that the New Testament uses the Old Testament to understanding how is often a perilous one. And so uh, can you explain that statement or open that up a little bit? Yeah, uh, part of it is, I think there's a lot of reasons why I think that's true. Um, and and uh, this isn't meant to be a kind of hot take on any particulars. I'm not trying to, you know, subtweet anyone in particular, but A, we are in an era where for whatever reason, there is a kind of new antipathy. Well, antipathy is probably not the right word. A new willful ignorance about the Old Testament. Uh, and and you, you probably know that, who I'm sort of broadly uh, implicating, uh, but I won't name names. Uh, this idea that, you know, the Old Testament ha- is kind of scary. It's hard. Uh, its view of sexuality is hard for modern people to deal with. You got the Canaanite annihilation, those kinds of things. So let's just unhitch from it. Let's just say we don't really need that. Uh, let's just focus on the New Testament. Or there's a different school that's a bit more principled that says, look, we are new covenant Christians. I don't, we don't really need the Old Testament that much. Um, and, and so there's that, I think, that's a tremendous headwind uh, where you might call it a kind of neo-Marcionism, Old Testament, not all that useful. Let's focus on Jesus and Paul. So I think that's part of it. I think the second issue is, um, you know, studies have shown that biblical, biblical illiteracy is a real challenge that we all face. I'm sure you face it uh, in your own church. I mean, I, it's interesting, you know, the more I'm in uh, the field I'm in, the more I'm a pastoring, the more I realize how much I don't know. Hmm. And uh, the biggest blind spots in general that people have uh, would be uh, the, the Old Testament. Um, and so that becomes a real challenge. You, you mentioned before we started recording that y'all, your church has been going through Romans uh, from the pulpit and Deuteronomy. Uh, in small groups. And, you know, there are some very challenging things about Deuteronomy itself. And then some very challenging things about how the New Testament in various places, including Romans, Galatians, and so forth, use Deuteronomy. And if you don't know what Deuteronomy is about, those quotations make no sense at all. Right. You get to Romans 10, you're like, I have no idea what he's doing. Right. So he must be making a mistake. Or maybe the apostles have some crazy way they're reading the Bible, or I just don't. And so it's like, well, maybe maybe it's the problem is us. We don't actually know Deuteronomy very well because not many people are going to just like randomly start reading through Deuteronomy. So that's also a problem. And the third big issue that really makes it perilous once you actually do dig into it is that there's so many different opinions on what exactly is going on when the New Testament uses the Old Testament. You know, is everything a prophecy of a Messiah? Why or why not? Um. Are the apostles playing fast and loose with the Bible and coming up with ideas that, are not, that aren't actually there? Um, do I need to become an expert in Jewish exegetical methodology and hermeneutics? And then all the, you, know, you see, you already start right. getting into right. this crazy, like, technical jargon. Is this midrash? You're like, well, what the heck does that mean? Um, it's a kind of disease. Fact, is yeah, right? it, mid rash. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a rash in your mouth. Yeah, but <laughs> uh, and even scholars don't. The, the problem is, as soon as you like start putting your toe into this, like I'm going to study, you know, Matthew's use of the Old Testament. I'm going to pick up a three views book on this topic. 
you're immediately overwhelmed. But also they start throwing terms around that you've never heard before because yeah. you know, no one talks about Qumran hermeneutics and Pesher Midrash and Gezerah Shabbat and all these things on a normal Sunday morning. And so you're just like in the deep end right out of the gate. Um, and so that's the step. Even if you, so to sort of put it all together, it, even if you're not a neo-Marcion, and people don't know who Marcion is, he was one of the early church heretics who dismissed the Old Testament entirely as being sort of a bad version of God, and New Testament is a, is Jesus is better, and so forth. So he was very anti-Old Testament, so there's kind of implications of that for today. But even if you're not neo-Marcionite, even if you like the Old Testament, and even if you want to study it and you want to apply it to how you read the New Testament, even if all those things are true, which again is not generally true for most people, um, as soon as you try to roll up your sleeves and do it, it is so overwhelming. It's overwhelming for me. I mean, the more like I read these monographs, I'm like, what on earth are you talking about? I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, and I'm a specialist in it. So uh, that's what I meant by it's a perilous step because you just go straight into the deep end and it's a wave pool and there's a storm and you're just like drowning right out of the gate. And so, my hope was like, okay, I'm going to try to hold your hand uh, to get you at least acclimated to the water so that uh, as you progress, then you can read other books that are uh, more technical, more rigorous and kind of go from there. So it's sort of like this is what I wish existed when I was in seminary uh, so that I wouldn't be so easily when I, when I was getting interested in this topic, I wouldn't get so easily kind of tossed around. So that's kind of the idea. I mean, I think that's where the book really helps. I mean, it's a very uh, succinct kind of like, it kind of clears away the clutter. Right. And it says, I, what I like is it, it kind of says like, you can be a lay person and this can still be something, you can still be enriched by, you know, going and we'll, we'll talk about you. You actually lay out a really helpful process that I think lays it out. Uh, you even use the word remixing. So good gets good contextualization. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. your audience um, well, at least some who probably don't. We can get into it, but part of me was like, you know, special that like people, scholars are going to hate this because they're going to like, oh, this is too simple, this is too cute, or whatever. But it's not for them, so they can shut up. You can say like the New Testament is like the TikTok version of the Old Testament or something. No, you know? I mean that, that's quite, no, you know, quite going down that road. But I uh, think that's a blog post, Doctor no, Lanier. You, I, you, I, that's one you can write. I'll do that. I'll that. submit that. I'll submit that to uh, the Gospel Coalition. Uh, now. But, yeah, but, but you're right. Part of this is when, when you get thrown in the deep end and that step from, like you mentioned, that quote, what I notice myself, I mean, I'm probably I'm pushing through it, obviously, because I've done a fair amount of this kind of thing. Uh, but certainly early on, as I was studying this my own, both in seminary and then later, uh, when you get overwhelmed with the jargon and it sounds like you're talking to a bunch of like neurosurgeons like I thought I knew the Bible but I don't know what they're talking about the the gut reaction is okay this must be something that only specialist nerdy people can do right right or my pastor has the kind of esoteric knowledge and I'm going to have to be dependent on them and so part of the maybe ulterior motive of, of the book is like no you can do this and in fact I think I mentioned somewhere along the way it's like look the steps I'm giving you there's only three of them um, as opposed to like 12 uh, you can, you can do this in five minutes with just your NIV during your quiet time. And that that's better than nothing. That's probably better than what you were doing. 
And hopefully that's a stepping stone. Or you could do this for six hours uh, because you can, this is a simple platform. Like you can go as deep as you want. Uh, you can look it up in the biblical languages. You can consult commentaries. You can study intertestamental writings uh, if you have the time, but you don't have to. Uh, so that's kind of the idea. It's like, no, you, you can actually do this. And here's a basic game plan so that in, in a women's Bible study uh, or a middle school Sunday school class, like y'all can actually do this. And hopefully they're memorable. And yeah, the remix thing, we can talk about my choice of that metaphor, but it's hopefully something. And as I tested this out with folks, like, it was encouraging. I would have people say, yeah, so I, I did this, I did this, and I did this, just like you said. It's like, okay, good. You, you remembered it, you applied it, that's all I want. So, I think that is a good way of just equipping people. I mean, I think, that's, I think when, you, when people, the way people learn is they often just need a couple pointers, and then they just kind of have to get their hands dirty into it. And actually, like, in the process of using these steps, questions emerge and then they actually know what answers they're looking for. And I think like you mentioned Beal with 12 ways to look at it, you just kind of like, man, that's, that is overwhelming. And you feel like these are answering things that I didn't even have questions for, or you don't really know how to just distill it and get to like something that makes it seem like it's manageable. You can actually, like you said, open up your Bible, your NIV during your quiet time, and you can actually glean something and you you map that out over multiple years, and then you'll be able to tackle more advanced things, or you'll be able to understand a little more about what right. what's going on. Yep. Uh, so, do you want to just give a brief overview? I mean, you have the the three step process of identifying the passage, and you double click on the passage, and then you remix the passage. So, uh, you know, and Doctor Wayne, you, right? you listen to the remix, We're not right? You listen, this, right? That's right. You, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you don't want to, right? You're listening to the remix. Uh, of it. And uh, what, 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 uh, what went behind this three-step process? Like, can you maybe even explain a little bit about what you're, what you're trying to lay out with those terms? Yeah, sure. And in fact, the, the book itself, there, there's two threads that run through it. And, and you may pick this up. One is I want to equip people with a set of tools. And so those are the three that you right. just mentioned, just a simple three-step process. So I'll come back to that. And then the other, and this is how the, the actual main content chapters are structured. Uh, the other thing is I want folks to have a basic understanding of when the New Testament uses the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, 14, or, or whatever, Isaiah 53. Um, there, in my view, there's three main kind of themes that they are uh, picking up on. They use the Old Testament, uh, and this one I think is often overlooked. Um, they use the Old Testament to define the terms and the mechanics is probably the wrong word, but like the how of salvation. Like, how are we actually saved? The striking thing that people often miss is at every step along the way when uh, Luke or Peter or whomever, whenever they're trying to just define that and the significance of what Jesus did salvationally. They go to the Old Testament. Why wouldn't they? That that mm -hmm. was their that was their Bible, and so that can be for me. That was pretty mind blowing, and I think that's a gap that people have. The second is they use the Old Testament. This is the more obvious one, at least for kind of Reformed people who are used to this. Uh, they use the Old Testament to uh, as their reservoir for understanding who Jesus is in terms of his person, his work, and so on. And then, uh, and this one, this was my. Um, 
I mentioned it in a footnote. I don't know if you saw the footnote. This wasn't intentionally meant to address uh, dispensational theology, but it is very relevant for that crowd. And I have friends who are dispensationalists or, or used to be dispensationalists, but um, there is an enormous amount of uh, situations in the New Testament where the Old Testament is used to define the identity and the work of the church, which if if you approach, and I, we don't have to get into dispensational theology, but from that framework, that might be a very surprising concept uh, based on how dispensationalism defines the relationship between church and Old Testament Israel. So those are the kind of three threads. And my point with that is, so I go through those chapters, I just go through all the different ways we see this based on not on the Old Testament, but on how the New Testament is used in the Old Testament. That's the key. Uh, so that anytime you're bumping into, uh, you know, a quotation of Hosea in Romans 9, like, what is that about? That seemed out of nowhere. In my opinion, it's usually playing one of those three chords, salvation, Jesus, or church, mm. sometimes more than one. Uh, and then I sort of have a final crescendo where we look at Revelation. So there's kind of those two threads. One is I want to give you the basic tools. And then I basically, then essentially in three main chapters, I use those tools to prove out the idea that the, the New Testament draws on the Old Testament to define salvation, to define the personal work of Jesus, and to define the identity and mission of the church. And so what I do then, and, and as you saw, is each chapter, I actually go through the steps and have the charts and whatnot uh, for six key examples so that you can sort of see how I would apply the very tools that I just gave you. Um, and then there's some uh, homework assignments at the end of each chapter. So that's the kind of outline of the book. But in terms of the three steps, well, I, I'll give you a second. Did you want to clarify anything about that that flow before I get into the three steps? Well, I think that that's I, I actually like that you brought up the dispensational uh, theology and, and and maybe some of the surprising things that would that would pop up if you actually follow these steps for if you, if you would hold to that uh, theology. And and it's interesting when you mentioned the three sort of categories you gave of salvation, Jesus, and the church. Because I think oftentimes when you think about the Old Testament, it's sort of just a where's Waldo for where's the for direct, yeah. yeah, the virgin birth or Bethlehem or things like that. Um, and that's all good. And it is, that, and it's true. Usually, right. my, and this is true for me, usually that's when Pete, that, that idea, which, I mean, I don't know if I was taught that growing up, and when that clicks, that really a lot of light bulbs go off for people. So I'm not downplaying that at all. Right, all right. I'm simply saying is that's not it. Uh, there's actually these other things where where uh, you have some very rich stuff that it's not strictly speaking finding Jesus under every rock. It's no, this is actually the church. This is global right. missions. Yeah. Jesus says very famously in Luke 24 that, you know, Sharing the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is as it is written. It's not just about me, in other words, he's saying. It's actually also go and share this uh, to the ends of the earth. And that itself is the message of the Old Testament that most people have no idea that's there. They think that's invented in Acts 2 or something. It's like, no, it's been there since at least Abraham, if not Noah, if not Adam. Um, and at least that's what, the, that's what the apostles say. Uh, so those kinds of realities uh, are there and ripe for the for the picking um, if, if people just sort of know what to do with it, know where to look. I think a lot of folks are, unfortunately, a lot of the scholarship on use of the Old Testament and the New, 
uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, steer people simply in the direction of this is a messianic prophecy. That's true many times, but that's not it. In fact, more the some more like recent research by guys like Richard Hayes and so forth have actually said, no, there's actually a an ecclesiological use of the Old Testament, not just a Christological use. So there's a church use of the Old Testament as well. I mean, it's it's so blatantly obvious, for example, in First Peter 2 as, as one key one. Uh, so anyway, that that's uh I can't remember what your exact question was, but well, I mean, it, it, that that's all those things are good because I mean that is often the entry point. You you sort of look up, oh, that they're quoting something pointing to the Messiah and you go to the old Testament reference and you see that, but then you also see, you know, Paul talking about people, uh, ministers, you know, basically allowed, they're allowed to be paid because, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy about an yeah. ox, you know, should yeah. eat while it's treading the grain. And, uh, and, and even just, you look through at all the old Testament references and you're like, Oh, like I remember it clicked when I thought about Abraham being used as sort of the, the example, the example of, uh, of, of the gospel of justification by faith in Romans four. And then I remember thinking, well, what did Abraham believe? He didn't sit there going, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's like, I don't know who Jesus is. Right. Right. Yeah. And, he, he and just thinking, four, he didn't have the four spiritual laws. Yeah. He didn't. Have right, exactly. Yeah. Right. It's like, <laughs> have you he seen the 10 I mean, commandments? So can, he didn't, he didn't pray the prayer for Jesus to come into his heart. And so you're like, okay, well, what do I do with that? Right. Exactly. Well, maybe, maybe there's something different going on. It's yeah. Kind of that, uh, but that, but that's the, that's the salvation concept there exactly. already in seed form there, um, and, and, and it's amazing. Like one of the on that theme, yeah. First Corinthians is such a great example uh, because of all the New Testament epistles, it's the one written to the most. Well, I guess you could argue Galatians it could be a good competitor. But First Corinthians, the church at Corinth is pretty messed up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and they're also thoroughly pagan background. You know, there are some right. Jews who are at Corinth, but it's a very pagan city. Uh, you know, to, to Corinthianize was a, a verb in the ancient world for basically to, to fornicate. Uh, that was their reputation. And we got to bring that back. We got to bring that back. Yeah, no, uh, I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you do yeah, it. I'll start but what's so striking in first Corinthians is that Paul A goes to the old Testament an enormous number of times. Uh, and some of the most interesting ones, in my opinion. And then B, a couple different times, he says something like, Abraham, our father. Hmm. And you're like, or he'll say, you know, our fathers were in the wilderness. And he's speaking to pagan converts and calling them the descendants of Abraham and the Israelites. Right. And uh, I mean, that is a profound statement for him to make to a thoroughly uh, if not exclusively, but thoroughly Gentile audience. And so those are the little kind of nooks and crannies that it's like, wait a second, what's he, he's not just talking about like Jesus-y stuff here, although he does a lot in first Corinthians, but he's like, no, he's saying something profound about who I am as a Christian, that, uh, I am a child of Abraham. And what does that mean then? Uh, even, even though I'm not ethnically a child of Abraham. So there's all kinds of fascinating stuff like that. So that's just a great, great picture of, we need to have a broader understanding, or at least my my hypothesis. We need to have a broader understanding of the the rich ways the Old Testament factors into the New. A big part of that is Jesus, but it's not limited, and, and really everything flows through him. That's also true, but it's not purely like he's the prophet fulfilling Deuteronomy right. eighteen. He's the suffering servant. He's the Son of Man. All of that's true, and that's all wonderful. 
but there's all these other little uh, branches off of that, that that go into sort of salvation or church. And, the, the, you know, and I, and I mentioned this, they're all, those three topics are obviously all related, but they, right. they can be distinguished in some way. So. It is funny when you mention how, you know, the Corinthians and the Galatians, I mean, churches were really messed up in the first century. And mm-hmm. I, I always, I know it's sometimes it's popular to say, you know, man, we got to get back to the new Testament church. And I'm like, are you sure? I mean, they, they didn't have it all figured <laughs> yeah. out. They were some I'm like, problems. have you read the book of Acts? I know. I'm like, this is not some, you know, golden age of morality within the Christian church. But right. I mean, but it's also a beautiful picture of man. I mean, he's just like, yeah, the guys at Corinth, though, you oh, you people sinning, you're, you're saints, though, like you're in the gospel, like, like, I'm going to rebuke you. But he views them through the lens of Christ and he loves them deeply, you know, and, and it's a fascinating picture. Well, something you mentioned with dispensational theology, and I, I think this is really relevant because I, and I don't know if people are aware of this, but I think a lot of times maybe your first, you know, Bible study Bible or or maybe your first Bible teachers on a popular level. Um, dispensational theology is sort of baked into it. Maybe that's less so today, but I know in prior generations, that was just sort of like when you got a good. Bible, it was, you know, like a, a dispensational kind of Bible. And yeah, Schofield Bible. Schofield Bible. I, would, right? I would, I think maybe in the circles you and I run around in, that may be true that it's not as popular, but I think it's still, yeah. as far as I'm aware, it's still the dominant approach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at and least I, in America. That's right. That's right. And, and I think um, one line of argumentation I've heard from dispensational circles is when Isaiah receives a vision about the restoration of Israel. You know, uh, it's the idea of God's wink, wink, like he's not actually telling him the full truth. Like, oh, you said Israel, but I meant something else. Some of these Old Testament ideas, if 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 you want to take them literally, or if you want to take them seriously, they've got to apply to something that Isaiah or Jeremiah would have been like, oh, I understand what they're talking about. Whereas if it was about the church, they wouldn't understand that. They wouldn't have a concept. How does even your three-step methodology kind of So how to, how to about take that? down dispensationalism in, in uh, three easy steps? You said um, that. I didn't say that. You said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's, there's a large can of worms that I don't necessarily want to open. Um, sure. Because a, a thoroughgoing principle dispensational approach to scripture is really a comprehensive take on everything. So it's not like I can proof text my way and say, sure. I own you and you're, you're done. Uh, same thing with, you know, a reform covenantal approach. It's a whole system and, and it has a lot of building blocks. Um, I think one way I could address that particular question of Old Testament prophecies from the perspective of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Joel, et cetera, have to be intelligible to them and have to be solely applied to a concrete understanding of, of ethnic Israel. And therefore, you know, there will be a literal rebuilding of the temple, a literal reconstitution of the nation of Israel with Jesus on the throne and Jerusalem, et cetera. Um, but that all, I think, makes sense if you hold a particular uh, approach, as you mentioned, you know, literalistic approach. Um, and there, there's a lot I... I appreciate about that because it, I think it is coming from a good place of we're trying to take the Bible seriously. We're trying to take the words of uh, these prophets seriously. Uh, where my book comes in in that particular chapter, where I deal with that. Kind of, well, two, it sort of comes up in two different chapters. The problem is that's not what Paul does. That's not what Luke mm-hmm. does. 
It's not what Peter does. Uh, certainly not what you know John does in the book of Revelation. Uh, what we find them doing, and, and Paul explicitly saying this, is he'll take the words of Isaiah, from Isaiah 40, 42, or whatever, and he'll say, you know, he'll quote Isaiah saying, okay, there will be this restoration, and Israel will be brought in, and the, the deliverer will come from Zion, or come to Zion. And he'll say, that day is now. He'll say, we as the church are the people upon whom the end of the ages has come. Second Corinthians. Um, that doesn't work, in my opinion, uh, or at least when I've when I've interacted with dispensationalists who kind of show those texts to them. The the gymnastics required to get away from the force of that, saying that no, we or Galatians 6, you know, we are, the church is the quote-unquote Israel of God. Um, the gymnastics, ironically, that, that you try to say, well, you know, Paul's talking about this, whatever, um, be, become suspiciously non-literalistic. Interesting, yeah, yeah. The, the attempt to do away with the passages that are so blatantly obvious, when Peter says that we are the holy nation, the royal priesthood, and he's talking to a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who've converted to Jesus in 1 Peter 2, uh, 10 and following. Um, it, like The attempt to say, well, no, he really is just talking about Jews there and about you know, the reconstructed temple, whatever, whatever, you, whatever someone might say. I'm like, yeah, but that's not a literal hermeneutic of what Peter is saying. Right. <laughs> You're not using your that's own right. toolkit here uh, because the force can't, can't be that easily um, denied. So that's kind of where I go with it is instead of foisting a particular grid on the text, you know, that's, that's unavoidable in some respects. You have to bring something to the table. What I'm attempting to do in the book is say, okay, let's, without picking sides and who's right, Schofield and Ryrie are right, or Calvin's right, or whatever, um, let's actually pay very close attention to what Matthew is actually doing, or what Paul is actually doing, or what Jesus is actually doing whenever he interacts with the Old Testament. Does that sound like they are speaking of you know, Israel always in purely an ethnic sense, or the promises about you know, a post-exilic restoration of the day of the Lord and the coming of Messiah and so forth. Does it, does it work for that to purely be a futuristic, ethnically oriented thing before which the church is a parenthesis? And my persuasion is, no, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't even, in my opinion, remotely square with what Paul does in, uh, as a particular example in uh, Romans 9 through 11 or whatever. So uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to say, okay, as Bible readers, what I want you to do is not be sort of flimsy biblicist, and I guess that's kind of a, a thing right now, but let's make sure that we derive our approach from what the New Testament authors are actually modeling for us. Let us let them teach us how to do this, just like Jesus taught them how to do it before he ascended. Um, that to me seems more uh, interesting and, and sound, and I, and I am persuaded that of the schools of thought, one is, is better than others, but that's not kind of where I lead uh, lead things off. So um, with that in mind, in terms of the three steps, just because people may be wondering, what are these three steps? These three magical steps, they're actually not super magical. Um, <laughs> the first step is identify that the New Testament is indeed interacting with the Old Testament. 
And many times that's very easy. Uh, you mentioned study Bibles. A lot of times your study Bibles can help with that, uh, or even just the biblical text can help with that. Now, the King James and some others don't explicitly mark, typically. They don't mark uh, quotations. They, they're not going to typically put quotation marks around an Old Testament citation. Uh, you know, the New King James does. NASB puts them in bold, ESV, NIV put them in quotation marks. And so a lot of times it's pretty obvious. Uh, of course, those weren't there in the original Greek, and so it was a little bit harder back in the old days to figure this kind of stuff out, although the, the scribes sometimes did mark it in the margins. Um, sometimes it's a bit more, it's a bit more indirect, and I, you may recall I, I lead with an example in the first chapter uh, where it's the, when Jesus goes, it's actually appropriate for the timing of our conversation, when he goes to the temple uh, during Holy Week, and, and or to kick off Holy Week and cleanses the temple, there's actually two quotations that uh, show up about that situation. The this, this should be a house of prayer for all peoples, but you have made it a quote-unquote den of robbers. And not all English translations mark the second one hmm. as a quotation. Uh, some study Bibles will help you with that. Uh, kind of depends on, or some, you know, depends on the app you're using. So point being, uh, generally speaking, it's fairly straightforward to say, okay, Hebrews is using Psalm 40 here because it's pretty obvious, or maybe you have a footnote in your Bible that tells you that. Sometimes it's a little bit harder and you have to do a bit more work to sort it out. Uh, so to help you with that, I've included in the appendix of the book a list of my view of what they all are, something like 400 different places, um, excluding the ones that are like real vague uh, or just like he just mentions Moses, but there's no specific text in view. So Step one, uh, step one is identify what you're dealing with. Like, okay, I need to stop and study this. That's the whole idea. It's like, don't just keep reading. Paul just quoted Deuteronomy here. So you need to be paying attention, like mm. go do something with that. So that's step one. Step two is uh, double clicking on the Old Testament. And I debated about, is that too cute or whatever? But I think it captures the idea. I thought about doing pinch zoom. Uh, but I'm not sure if everyone would necessarily, because that's really what I mean. Um, but, you know, whatever, it, it's just meant to be a useful memory aid. The idea there is stop what you're doing, turn left in your Bible and go look up this passage and study it. Um, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I probably used to do this. It's easy. It's quick. And honestly, it's somewhat lazy to just keep moving in Galatians, right? Like, yeah, I know he just quoted Leviticus and Isaiah and Deuteronomy and Joel and Hosea or whatever all in a row. That's a lot of work. I'm just going to keep reading in Galatians, right? Right, right. Uh, it's so, and, and I mean, pastors is actually, I, I taught a doctor of ministry course um, on this very topic last summer, and they got to test drive the book. And uh, the point of the class was, how do you preach these passages? Which is a whole different issue because you only have a certain amount of time when you're preaching. Right. And it was funny, all of them were like, and I gave them very hard passages where there would be a bunch of quotations in a row. And like, I don't know what to do with this because I can't follow them all and do like a 20 minute discussion of Habakkuk 2 here. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's the point. The point is, how right. are you going to do this um, and do it right? So uh, even pastors in the pulpit are tempted to just move on. But what I'm suggesting in the second step is don't just move on because you're going to make some missteps if you do. What you need to do is go back and read Joel 2 or read Habakkuk 2 or read Deuteronomy 30 or Galatians 15 or excuse me, Genesis 15. Uh, what's going on in that passage? It may just be one verse that Matthew quotes or Mark quotes. 
but go read at least the chapter. You don't have to read all of Isaiah, but at least read Isaiah 40. What, where is it in Isaiah? Uh, what's going on in Israel at this stage? Are we during the conquest? Or is this Abraham dealing with Isaac and Ishmael? Or is this a, a poem in, in the Psalms about whatever? Uh, spend a few minutes. Again, it, it, you could do this in five minutes. Just go mm-hmm. read it. But if you have more time, then spend more time. I'm like, what? What? Where are we? And then, because the question is, why is this relevant to what the apostle, the apostolic writer, is trying to do? Why were they attracted to this passage? There's got to be a backstory here. And what I've found, and you know this from my classes, because uh, I pretty much do it every single time in class, and I usually use a fancy chart. In my view, without exception, that that exercise is the key to making sense of what's going on. Hmm. Uh, the more and more I've studied these passages, the more I've realized that what may seem to be obscure and strange, I don't understand why this is being quoted here. If you dig into its original context and understand where it fits in God's plan of salvation from Adam through to final consummation, um, what I've found is they're actually just being the, the, the New Testament writers and Jesus are, are just being good, basic Bible readers. Uh, yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's not magic sauce that we're looking for. They just understand what Isaiah is about. Mm. They understand what Exodus is about. You know, of course they would because God is inspiring them. So, so what we're trying to do in that second step is I need to train my brain to think about what the Old Testament is about. And that takes a lot of work. Like we mentioned at the outset, you know, that's not easy. Many of us, we may know Daniel and the lion's den, and we might know, uh, you know some of the Ten Commandments or, <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, they're not only sticking to those passages. They're going to some pretty deep cut kind of places like B-side places. And it's up to us. And what I hope people come away from the book is like, that's exciting to go and dig into that kind of stuff. Let me understand what Zechariah is about because Zechariah is quoted a bunch of times and it's probably not a book that many people are familiar with, but it's a really, really important uh, minor prophet. So anyway, that's the second step. Third step is listen to the remix. And what I mean by that is once you've kind of done some sort of study on the Old Testament and ask some questions of the text, then you go back to wherever you are in First Thessalonians or something. And you say, okay, what is the New Testament author doing with this passage? And I'll ask you, why, what was your impression of the remix metaphor? Like, what did I mean by that? And is it, a, is it an effective, what is it trying to capture by saying the New Testament authors are remixing the Old Testament? I actually, I thought it was a good metaphor because it's, it's the idea of you're, you're taking like in a remix, you, you basically sample something or you take something original, but then you add elements to it, but you can still recognize the original sort of pattern underneath it. But there's an additional thing that doesn't change the original, but kind of lifts up elements, especially good remixes can lift up elements of the original song that maybe were in the background, but now become more foregrounded in the, in the newer, in the newer version. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the, yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly uh, what I was trying to go with it. And it, and it does what that the metaphor of a remix, I think is key for this whole like dispensational question or whatever. Um, Because what I argue in the book and what I, what I am persuaded is a view that is impossible to get around. Uh, is that the New Testament authors aren't simply copying and pasting from the Old Testament in a wooden way. 
because of the coming of Jesus um, and his, not only his preexistence, but also his, particularly his incarnation, his earthly ministry, his death that we celebrate, his resurrection this week, uh, when this is being recorded, um, and so on, that that, it doesn't mean that there's all this new magical meaning. It's not right. what I mean. Because again, we're not, we're not making a totally new song. What it means is what was already there has now reached its fullness. It has matured in some way. In fact, I, I make the argument that the Old Testament itself reads itself that way. Hmm. Now, when Daniel reads Jeremiah, uh, which he does, he quotes Jeremiah, which many people don't know. He's reading it in a, okay, I see his prophecies now coming to pass. And that means something now, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, well, technically 70, it's like 66 years later, whatever it was. Uh, and so the, even more so that's true in the New Testament. So uh, the remix idea is we want to understand what is the point of continuity where you can recognize the original, where they're being very sensitive to the original meaning as given to Moses, as given to Hosea. But what is the element of discontinuity, the new rhythm, the new melody, the new, the hidden, you know, the, the sort of baseline that I'm now making more prominent that you might have missed? You know, where is that element of discontinuity that has been prompted by the fact that Jesus has come and that changed everything? That's the idea. And so it's not a perfect metaphor, but the, what I'm trying to say is they're not, A, they're not just making things up, which I think is one error that people can fall into. But B, they're also not just sort of in a in a boring way saying, well, you know, Deuteronomy was about just feeding ox. And right. therefore, Paul's just you know, being stupid here. It's like, no, there's actually something deep about the, this idea. Why does he go to the, you know, letting the ox eat the grain and talking about Christian ministers? Well, there's actually some point of, of continuity, faithfulness to the original context, but also something new about we are now. Ministers are now, uh, you know, God's servants in yoking themselves to the gospel and plowing the field. Uh, and so the, we're trying, what, what the third step is, let me think through what's going on with Paul's use of Genesis 15 that's uh, consistent with the original song, if you will, because again, it's a remix, it's, a, it's recognizable, you know it's from the Beatles or you know it's U2 or whatever, um, but it has been transformed in some way to bring out new, uh, not, it's not necessarily new meaning in the sense that it's like a, a new in invention. It's more bringing out elements that have now matured and developed because God has been at work. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to kind of open people's eyes to. And the more you do it, the more you realize it's not, it's not that hard to figure out what they're doing as long as you, Study the Old Testament well and then say, okay, Jesus changes everything in a lot of different ways. And how does that impact this? Why does he say X? And go from there. Uh, now, some are harder than others, but uh, in general, I, I hope at the end of reading the book, people realize, okay, this isn't as mysterious and cryptic and weird as I thought. The problem really was me not spending the time studying the Old Testament to get my sort of broad view of, of redemptive history and so forth. So those are the three steps that you just, every time, you know, again, and, and I have charts that you can fill in, um, but you can kind of do whatever you want to, but every time you bump into this, 
spend a time, you know, if you commit the effort to trace those steps out, uh, I think you're right over, over, over the long term, you become a much more savvy, robust Bible reader. And um, that, that I hope is, is the, the name of the game. So, I mean, I, the, the charts and the sort of the side-by-side comparisons you put in your book, I think are really helpful in seeing this method played out. And I think once you see your sort of examples, you're like, oh, this isn't as maybe complicated or as daunting as it may initially seem if you just see the steps. And uh, I, I think, you know, I remember you had some examples about um, quotations where, you know, the word nations is specified as Gentiles or, or, or different right. things like that, where you kind of see an eschatological a self-awareness that we're in a different period of time. And so we can see some of these things come to fruition, like you were saying, and the way they quote it reflects that. Right. And would you, is it fair to say that, that in your three sort of your three part steps, you're trying to basically condition us to be like those first century hearers who maybe this would have been instinctual for them. Uh, do you think that that's a fair thing? If I assume Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul, they're writing to people assuming that when they quote Deuteronomy or when they quote Zechariah, that their immediate audience would be like, Oh, I get it. Whereas we would maybe not immediately get it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we. It is worth recognizing, and I, have, I think I have like a, a box on this somewhere in the book that it is hard to reconstruct the the original audience in terms of what's their education level. You know, right. were were they always able to pick up what Paul is throwing down? Right. And I think the answer to that is is no, obviously not. Uh, nor did everyone always understand what Jesus was throwing down. I mean, you, you see that in, in the gospel. That's right. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. He says this and he quotes Psalm 110, applies it to himself. And people are like, what? Right. Right. <laughs> uh, hold on a second. And, and obviously, even the disciples were, were fairly thick. And, and they admit, I don't mean that pejoratively. So, so am I. Uh, and I would have been far worse than they were. Um, but they, they, they admit, uh, or at least the, the biblical text admits they weren't always 100 percent, you know, quick on the uptake. Um, and what's interesting then about that, and I'll, I'll try to answer your, your question more directly. Um, if the first century audience, just like the modern audience, just like people in my own church, whenever I'm preaching on Sunday morning, if they're on a spectrum of very limited to no Bible understanding at all because they literally just heard about this the first time to converted Pharisee who has memorized large portions of the Bible and knows their stuff. Um, if that's who they're dealing with, or, or if we acknowledge that that's probably true, that they're, that, that, that they're going to be at different places of, of grasping um, what Jesus is preaching when he quotes or applies the Old Testament. If that's true, what do we see the apostles do in Acts and in the epistles to rectify that situation? They preach and they teach. And what do they specifically preach and teach? So many times, over and over again, they preach the Old Testament. Right. And in fact, what was the last thing Jesus did before he ascended? At least in Luke's gospel, he... He did a long Bible study on the road to the He did a long Bible study on the Old testament because yeah. like, this is what you got to know so right so he did that in luke 24 and then when you get to the book of acts 
Uh, I mean, you're in chapter one and they're already quoting some various Psalms so forth, but especially Acts two, then Acts four and a bunch of the, I mean, what is that? What is Acts seven? Stephen's speech. It is a big biblical theology 101 uh, discussion. What is Acts 13? This is Paul's uh, major speech at Caesarea Philippi. It is a Bible 101 lesson. Acts mm. 2, you know, the day of, it's what's interesting. Just I'm kind of going with somewhere with this. So bear with me. Hopefully I can get there <coughs> uh, without too many rabbit trails. But you think of the Pentecost situation and everyone wants to get distracted by tongues. And should we speak in tongues? And do we baptize babies or not? What I find interesting about Acts 2 actually is about is the fact that they don't really stress about any of that stuff. What is what does Peter do? His first sermon is a very thorough exegesis or ex- exposition of Joel 2, uh, Psalm 69, and Psalm 110, mm-hmm. and some other bits and pieces thrown in there. Because his gut instinct is to understand what's going on, these people need to know their Old Testament. And so I'm going to sit here and patiently teach it to them. Uh, and they do it again and again. And what are Paul? What is what is Romans? Romans is one massive exposition of a enormous number of Old Testament passages. So the point of all that is, if the audience of these people, uh, Jesus and, and the apostles and their you know author Hebrews and so forth, uh, if they need to grow in their understanding of the Old Testament to make sense of the gospel and Jesus and so forth. It makes all the sense in the world that the apostles spend so much time showing them how to do that. Hmm. That's what they devote their writings and their, and their sermons to. It's like, let me unpack. Like no one ever preaches the parable of the good Samaritan in the book of Acts. Fascinating, isn't it? You know, no one mentions the parable of the prodigal or whatever. Um, They go to the old Testament. It's like, I need to, I need to do something even more foundational. Right. (laughs) So that you can understand what on earth is going on here. And so they go back to the Old Testament. So um, I, I think in a, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying, I think your question was, did they understand everything going on? I think the answer is no. And so what do we see the apostles doing? We see them training them so that they would understand more and more. That's a great, I mean, you talk about that. Uh, that'll preach. That'll preach. That'll preach. That's what I'm saying. I mean, and you talk about like when you, you're talking to those pastors and preachers about how do you explain, how do you link Hosea to this? And and even how you could be lazy in preaching by just kind of skipping over references in Galatians and and so forth. And I, I, I and speaking of Galatians, I remember in your class when we, when you, you talked about the autobiographical part that Paul has in the very beginning and, and you realize this guy spent, decades thinking about this stuff right it wasn't yeah, like he was, out in the, he was out in the who knows where in the wilderness of arabia yeah. for like 13 years and then he hung out with out. peter and the apostles and he talked to them and so this was a man who was reflecting over a long period of time before he really started the bulk of his ministry and you also think a lot of the epistles they're older men now reflecting back and they've had time for this to sort of uh seep into their the way they think and I, I, but I never made that connection of how important in preaching, helping people make that connection is. And it's the same, in, in a sense, it's the same mentality today that they had, or we should have the same mentality today that they had in the first century of being right. like, I mean, that's what I think the something more foundational is even, it, it, that, that's what it's showing us is this is what they did. 
Right. They had to cultivate baby early convert Christians into mature Christians. And the way they did that was let us slowly teach the Bible and unfold how the Bible does all this stuff. I was, uh, when we were, when we were overseas, I, I received some negative feedback on a sermon uh, that I preached because, and this was in, you know, one of the most, if not the most educated city mm. in all of the UK where this is not an exaggeration, probably something like two thirds of the adults in the congregation had uh, advanced master's degrees, if not a PhD. So as educated as, as you're going to find. And in my sermon, I can't remember what it was on, but I, I mentioned the exile, mm-hmm. uh, the exile of Judah, and because it might have even been an Old Testament passage. And I received some negative feedback later, and they said, you know, you can't, you can't go there in a sermon because these people don't know what you mean by the exile. Um, that's above their heads. And I didn't say this, but I thought this. I was much more diplomatic. Uh, but in my head, I said, if that's true, and I was just a guest preacher, I said, then that's your fault hmm. as the pastor. Uh, if if I, especially in Cambridge, <laughs> right, uh, of all places, like, okay, fine. If I'm doing the pre-K Sunday school class, fine. I'm not right, going to talk right. about Nebuchadnezzar and the exile. But it's like, if you if I can't ever touch the exile, because it's confusing to these highly educated people who've been Christians for a long time. If I can never go there, but Paul goes there and Matthew goes there a lot, then that's our problem. We're not training people to know their Bibles well. Um, And so maybe one side implication of the book project and other things I work on is as ministers, as Bible study leaders, um, but in general, as shepherds of, of the church, we're in an era, and you talked about TikTok, but we are in a TikTok era where sort of pixie stick theology is, and hot takes is, is what we're feeding people. Maybe maybe not necessarily intended, or at least I don't want to cast, I don't want to say we're all we. And I think my general read is that is a real risk factor. Uh, in our current era, even in good reformed churches, uh, that we that there's a temptation or a, a lazy tendency uh, to feed people little muffins and uh, jolly ranchers of theology. Um, and unfortunately, the New Testament doesn't give us that option hmm. because the New Testament makes no sense if that's all you're you're giving right. people. It, but and so we we need to hopefully, if nothing else, something like this, this effort. And again, there's a lot of you know, there's there's theology that we need to we could talk about. There's a lot of different things, and even just like overall biblical theology of the old testament, but specifically new testament use of the old, the aha moment for me is what they do with their Bible is is it imply it puts a tremendous burden on us to equip people to be able to follow what they're doing. Maybe that is one difference. You know, mm-hmm. we are so easily entertained uh, with a thousand different Hulu and Netflix options. And in antiquity, you know, their entertainment was like going to synagogue and listen to people read the Bible. Right. That may, maybe that did put them at, a, at an advantage where they would know those stories better than we do. And they live through the exile and that kind of thing. So maybe there is a, a big difference there. But either right. way, my, my, my ultimate point is to make any sense in the New Testament, it requires much more deep understanding of both new and old that isn't easily packaged in hot takes and little quotes excerpt, you know, excerpted and put in, put on nature backgrounds on Instagram. 
um, you know, 10 minute talks on finding Dory or whatever, and, and how we all need to find our way home to God because Dory found our way home to her parents or whatever, like that. And that's actually a, an actual example that from a, a church I visited recently. Um, and I'm not trying to kind of pile on and I've made lots of mistakes myself, but um, the, the Bible is, is hard and that's a good thing. Uh, that's an enriching, that's a life enriching thing. And so it's sort of incumbent on us. And I appreciate your podcast after that kind of thing to, to try to raise the water level because the water level has been seemingly going down. Uh, and, and so, you know, you know, this and sending people to seminary and so forth, people, when it starts to click for folks, even though it's hard, uh, it, it really can, it can change lives and get people fired up. So, anyway, I mean, I'm kind of rambling now, but. No, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated to find out a way to uh, incorporate Finding Dory in a biblically proper way. <laughs> That's Hist- the takeaway. Historically that redemptive way. No, no. Uh, but I, I, I think your book is a helpful tool for that. And, and uh, again, it's a great resource. I, I want to ask you one last question. And, and, and this mm-hmm. is something that I found also really helpful about your book. Because you spend a lot of time about sort of the self-understanding that this isn't just abstract kind of, oh, this is cool. The apostles thought they were part of, or the, the, the Jew and Gentiles in the church were part of Israel. They're the, the, they're the fulfillment of Israel. But you kind of bring it home and you're like, that's us too. And that this kind of Bible reading isn't just, oh, I learned a cool thing, but it could, like you say, it could change lives. It could revolutionize a self-understanding of a local church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I just want to hear a little more about that what do you what are some ways that you think viewing our own local churches as a continuation of this story that's been going on as a continuation of Israel what are some ways that that could transform churches on a local level yeah yeah no that's a great question one of the things that this is something that's um has been very significant to our own church um and the whole backstory in terms of how we approach children and youth ministry and the, the, the evolution that we've been going through. But uh, it's something that my wife and I take seriously about how we educate our own children in biblical theology um, is understanding that yes. And, and you and I have talked a lot about, uh, I don't want to go too far afield, but back when you were a student, we talked a lot about the new perspective on Paul yeah. uh, perspectives and, that's related to this because one of the things that makes something like that appealing is that it, it, it blows up the idea that Christianity is just a different kind of individual self-help with Jesus baked mm. in. But I get right with Jesus, do my quiet times, attend church on occasion, whatever, go to BBS. And it's really all just about me having a more fulfilling life and making sure I don't go to hell. Right new perspective and other kinds of things like that are saying, no, okay, that, that all is, is there's an element of that's, that's true. And there is personal conversion and personal justification and so forth. Um, but there's also God works through a, we, he, he works through an organism uh, that, that we call the, the church. And so um, point of all that is there's the reason why this is important is that, for a long time, at least in the American church, I don't think this is true uh, in other parts of the world, but the American church has cultivated this self-centered understanding of the Christian life. Uh, um, 
And, and I think we're starting to see and have been seeing some of the, uh, the detrimental effects of that. So that's, I think, part of the motivation is that's not a biblical picture of what the Christian life is like. And there's a lot of unhealthy things that flow from the, it's just me and Jesus. And so I don't need to be part of a church. I can just find Jesus in nature or whatever. So there's a whole, whole category that I think that's unhealthy. But what I find more interesting right now in our, and why I think this kind of rediscovery that I am part of something bigger than myself and my local church for all of its foibles and all of its goods and its bads um, and the things I like and things I don't like, my local church is part of something bigger than itself. Um, that I think is something that, uh, that idea is immensely important. I think for where we are right now, culturally, uh, and it's something that the church can and needs to do a better job, um, conveying this. If you look at the two big threads of contemporary American life that we've been grappling with one COVID and two, all of the social upheaval and different movements and so forth that we've been grappling with, um, politically, racially, economically, and so on. Um, the common thread underneath them all is A, a profound sense of isolation. That's the COVID bit. We all realized I don't like being alone all the time. I miss something about relationships. And B, all the different movements, whether you're far left, far right, somewhere in the middle, uh, whether it's this movement or that movement, are um, artific artificial is the wrong word. They're counterfeit ways of trying to find your identity in something bigger than yourself. This protest march or this group of people online that you want to affiliate with. And so the sort of polarization that we're seeing are people who find themselves very lonely because we've been selling them an individualistic approach to life and it's false and it doesn't satisfy. What are we doing? What are the teenagers doing? They're trying to find something else that's bigger than them to, to give them identity. And this could be a sexual minority. This could be a whole host of different things. Um, and that impulse is a reaction to this profound sense of isolation. So my point is, hopefully this makes sense. Um, it, if we can correct in the church our decades-long hyper-individualization of not only church life, like let me entertain you, but also salvation, that it's simply don't go to hell when you die. If we can say, no, there is a covenantal, historical people of God that's global, that's multi-ethnic, that includes people that you politically disagree with, and you have to sit beside and sing songs together and worship together and love, that is, in my view, if that body of Christ idea is a far better, in fact, is the true place where you can find uh, belonging and identity, find yourself in something bigger than yourself, not whatever ephemeral uh, sort of movement uh, becomes a kind of distorted counterfeit trying to make you feel better uh, and find your place. Does that, does that make sense? That's great. I mean, I, um, I think sometimes there's a Christian response to the vision saying, you know, find your identity in Christ. It's sort of a buzzword. And I think oftentimes what people mean is it's like a psychological reality. Like mm -hmm. Jesus loves you. 
he wants to hug you or something. I don't know, you know, something, something very cycle as opposed to, I think. And, and speaking of Greek, they're probably, even though we can't distinguish as in English, unless you're in the South, that is a second person singular, your. Hmm. Find your personal identity singular right, right. in Christ. That I would argue, and, and there's been some debate on this in the Twitter sphere. That's not really a very biblical idea. It's actually find y'all's identity in Christ right. as a recovering Southerner. Uh, that our that that our fundamental identity is a corporate identity as the children of Abraham, eschatological Israel, body of Christ, vineyard of the Lord, people of God, plural, that that's actually a fundamental identity. Now, again, that makes more sense in certain other parts of the world. It doesn't make sense in America, but right. I think that's what we learn. If we learn anything from COVID from a church perspective, because basically what COVID did is it maximized Maximize? That's not a right word. Maximized an individualistic Christianity by having us sit in front of our computers and watch right. a quote unquote church service. And I think, I hope, at least most folks I'm talking to uh, cross denominations, we realize, yeah, that that is that is taking our individualistic Christianity to its logical extreme, and it is ugly. People realize, no, I want to be with the body of Christ. Uh, there's much more of a hunger and a longing uh, for that. And I think that this is an opportunity to really push that. I know at our church, we've been really trying to say, no, what you're feeling when you walk in now, I mean, we started back with 14 people and now we're like 340 and we have no space. I think part of that is that people realize, no, there is something valuable about realizing I'm part mm-hmm. of something bigger. I'm part of this people of God through time, this local manifestation of that. And there's something really enriching about that and gets people off their, you know, social media induced uh, isolation. And I think that the real risk that we face with that is that it's, I know as a pastor, we have people in our own church who, who've kind of gone down that path of, we don't need to come back. We'll just watch the live stream. Uh, it's very tempting for me just to slam dunk on that person. Right. And say, okay, that's their problem. You know, they're right. just being stupid or whatever. Um. In reality, what what is probably more true is that exposes a failure on my part to give them a better understanding of their place in the church. Hmm. Yeah. If if yeah. I have trained someone to be a consumer of a live podcast, i.e., a sermon on Sunday morning, yeah, with a few songs that is meant to satisfy their stylistic preferences, say some things that they find engaging and interesting, and then they get to go home. If that's what I've trained a Christian to be, if that's what church is, then it makes a hundred percent sense that they're just going to Amazonify that now Hmm. because I've made it even more convenient to be a consumer. Why wouldn't they? Why? Like, this is great because I it's like more I can is more high def than in person on my you know 100 inch screen TV, whatever. Yeah. And so what I hope we all realize as pastors and so forth is not slam dunk on the people who haven't come back, but okay, let's reflect on are we communicating to people, new members or, or old time members, that they matter for the church, that it's not just the pastor saying some things for 30 minutes that actually know 
our church exists because you're supposed to, and you are called to, and we need you to be here, show up, use your gifts, whether you're six or 96. Um, and that's something that, you know, we've tried at our own, our particular church, like to be very deliberate about that. It's like, we want to deploy everybody. We're not, and we're not sort of a overly like programmatized church, but we are trying to say, no, you know, you as a 13 year old kid with some tech skills, like we need you to run sound on Sunday morning. And if you don't do it, then it doesn't happen. And so you matter. And like, we've seen like that really shapes the way people feel like, no, I'm part of something. Uh, it's not just, it's not just a sermon and a few songs, you know? So I see it more as an opportunity to double down on let's equip people with a new understanding of church, as opposed to just like crapping on people who haven't come back. That That's the, that's the easy option is like, well, those, those people are just lazy Christians. Like, no, maybe that's our fault. Actually. Maybe we, maybe we train them to be that way and let's try to fix that. Thank you so much for joining me on this. And, and uh, I really do think your book was really just a great resource. I think it's going to help a lot of people. I'm going to link uh, a link to that book and uh, to your blog. I know your blog is, are you still kind of alive on that? I, thing? I don't it's do got some much. good stuff on there. Yeah. I don't do as much because a lot of times the stuff I would do on my blog, I just, it goes to like other outlets. So, um, but yeah, it's fine. Well, yeah. And I can link to that link to as well. I'll link to that as well. And uh, oh yeah. Before I forget though, I mean, you know, you said for X too, I mean, should we speak in tongues and baptize babies? Uh, we all speak in some tongue, uh, some, you know, I, I know English fairly well, I don't know, some other languages I can, so I, yeah, we all speak in some tongue. Uh, and, and yes, we should baptize babies. But that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> there we go. There we go. We'll have you on for that one. Maybe some other time. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, again, thank you, Dr. Lanier. Appreciate your time. And, uh, again, yeah, thank you. Great resource. 